All right. Well, again, welcome uh, to Lower Town. Glad you're able to be here this morning. Uh, we are in week 10 of 16. Actually, it was 14, but you know what I'm talking about. Week 10, though, of this series of the Bible in 16 verses and what we've been uh, doing, what we've been calling a biblical theology of the major story of the Bible. And, and so we're just going continue, to continue with this. I'm going to kind of recap. Uh, but before I do that, uh, do you, have you ever had to wait for something like that, that was good? Like just been so excited for something that you knew was, was coming, something that you knew was about to happen? Uh, I was thinking about, about what this could be. It could be uh, maybe a vacation, um, you know, when you were a kid and you just, you, you know you're going to go to grandma's house or you, you know you're going to uh, whatever, you know, go, go somewhere and do something and just uh, the excitement of that, um, you know, waiting, you know, if you remember Christmas Eve and, and uh, wanting to see what's going to be downstairs. Um, remember summer break? Remember the last day of school? Do you guys remember when you finally had a real job? Uh, and, you, and you looked outside and you saw kids like just playing, uh, just the college students or whatever it may be. And it's like, oh yeah, I don't get to do that anymore. You know, I, I have a life now. I'm an adult and apparently that means working every day, all day, every day. Uh, that's part of the, you know, nothing more to look forward to. That's it. Um, could be a movie coming out. Uh, could be game night. I remember when I was a kid, I, I was addicted to this board game called Axis and Allies. Uh, it was this really nerdy World War II game, and I would play it with my buddy Steve Eggerdahl, and I just loved, he was the only friend that was nerdy enough to play, you know, with me, uh, and we would just leave it there forever, and his dad would, would play with I just, I loved it. I loved going over there and, and doing that. Um, could be the start of football season. Uh, that's always a big, a big thing for me, really excited about football starting. It could be, remember the anticipation of waiting for a, a friend to arrive on an airplane? I don't know if you ever did that, if like you went to the, the airport. Remember back in the day before 9-11, you could actually like go into the airport and look at the sign, hey, welcome home or whatever. And it was really exciting. Can't do that anymore. Uh, so it's not as exciting. You're waiting in your car. Hey, I'm, I'm at gate C, <laughs> you know, whatever. But, but it's like there's something, right? It's just when, you, when, you, when you're this expectation, something you're waiting for that's really exciting. And, and so we actually get to do this. We, we've been kind of waiting uh, for the last 10 weeks now for, to get to, in the storyline, to get to, to Jesus. Every week we talk about Jesus for sure. The whole thing's about Jesus. But, but we've been kind of waiting, but, but Israel has really been waiting. Uh, and so when we look at, this is kind of the outline, the story uh, that we've been looking at. We started in creation and, and God creating um, uh, Adam and Eve and male and female. And then we have the fall and sin enters the world. But then right there at the beginning in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, we have this redemption promised that God says, I'm going to save everybody all the way back then. That he's going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent's going to bruise his heel, but I'm going to send a, a savior. I'm going to send a redeemer. And that's promised right then. And then we have Abraham that's introduced and that he's going to be the father of many nations and every nation on the earth is going to be blessed through him. And so everyone's, there's this anticipation, right? Okay, we're waiting then for these, these promises, these covenants to be fulfilled. Judah, that his descendants are going to be kings. That we have this Passover land that the Israelites are going to celebrate this meal to, to remember the, the sins that were covered by the blood of this lamb. Then we have Moses and the law. And that, hey, these are the stipulations that you're going to live by. And if you do them, I'm going to, I'm going to love you and you're going to be my people. But if you don't, then 
punishment's going to happen. But then we get King David, and he's established on his throne. And it's like, okay, we're here. We're in the promised land. We're, we're in Israel. We're in Jerusalem. We have our, our king set up, and we have his throne set up. And, and yet it doesn't last long. The king falls into sin. His son, Solomon, is uh, exceedingly sinful. And then he, the kingdom splits right after that, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. But then a couple weeks ago, uh, Paul preached on the suffering servant, that the, that the prophets say, there's something about this savior, this Messiah that's gonna be coming that's not just gonna be some ruler who's gonna sit down on a throne that we think, like David, it's gonna be something different, but nobody's expecting it. And then last week, looking at this resurrection promise, right, in Ezekiel, these, these dry bones, these bones, these bones, these dry bones, God's gonna bring them back to life, and that's Israel, that's going to be, they're going to be brought back to life, that God is going to restore them. But again, everyone here is still thinking about an ethnicity of Israel, thinking about a location in Jerusalem, thinking about a kingdom that's going to be set up physically, politically. But Jesus has some other things in mind. And we've already covered these, but he's going to make sure that this is reiterated today. And so that's why when we, when everything that we've covered so far, when Jesus is talking about himself and people start doubting that Jesus is actually the Messiah, that's why he says, if you don't believe the Moses and the prophets, why would you believe me? I, you have the Bible. The whole Bible is about me, the Messiah. And they don't like that. They don't like it so much, they kill him for it. But we're getting ahead of my, I'm getting ahead of myself, getting ahead of the story. And this week though, we had the fulfillment and so this week, looking at fulfillment, in Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15, the time is fulfilled. And so just titled this sermon, Fulfillment, uh, pretty, pretty Captain Obvious here. But before we get into the text, I wanna give a little bit of, of, of history uh, of the nation of Israel. I think history is so important. Uh, we, we learn so much from our mistakes, uh, from the past. Uh, we talked about, right, a couple weeks ago, had a sermon called The Dumb Tax, right? Let them pay the dumb tax. Let them make the mistakes so we can learn from. And so uh, I want to go back and just look at, because of the rebellion of Israel, because of, of their place of, of rejecting their creator God, who has proven himself over and over and over and again, and they just constantly just spit in his face and reject God and reject Yahweh, he finally says, that's enough. And so we ent they enter into a time of, whoops, they enter into a time, uh, I forgot to switch it, of Assyrian, of Assyrian captivity. That the nation of Assyria, and this is outlined in Daniel chapter eight, the, the prophet Daniel uh, prophesies that this Assyrian thing is gonna happen, and so he, he's writing about this, that they're gonna be under, the, they're, gonna be, they're gonna live in the land still, they're gonna dwell in Israel, the actual land, the promised land, but they're gonna be under an occupational rule. And so then we get then the Babylonian captivity. This is when David, or excuse me, Daniel would have been writing. And so you may have heard of the name Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, if you're like me, you sang songs about Nebuchadnezzar. Anybody else? Uh, we do this every week. I always sing these weird songs. Again, I'm not weird, you're weird. Uh, you, uh, and so uh, Nebuchadnezzar, though, has a son, Belshazzar. And there's this wild story in Daniel, Daniel chapter five where, where Belshazzar is, so, so Nebuchadnezzar, sets up this huge idol of himself. I forget how, 90 feet, golden idol of himself, statue of himself, and he, and he commands people, you're gonna bow down, you're gonna worship this idol, and you're gonna worship me as God, I am God. And then Yahweh, God, is like, no, you're not. Matter of fact, you're not so much God, I'm gonna make you act like an animal. 
And you're gonna go out and you're gonna wander the fields like an ox and you're gonna eat the grass and your nails are gonna grow out like a beast. And no one's gonna care about you. You're still gonna be king, but your, your mind's not gonna be there. And then he snaps out of it and he realizes, oh, God, Yahweh, the God of Israel is actually God. And so he starts worshiping the God of the Israelites, starts worshiping Yahweh, but then his son, Belshazzar, doesn't do that. He goes in and he takes all of the, the elements and the, the vessels, cups and bowls and plates that are made of gold and silver that Israel used to worship Yahweh in their temple, and he takes them and he throws a party, throws an orgy. He has all these different things. They're just getting drunk and they're using these instruments and God shows up and he's like, enough, not okay. So he goes in and he takes his finger and he writes on the wall, mene, mene, teke, you farsin, or something like that. I don't know even what language it is, but that's what's written on the wall. And nobody can interpret it. So the king calls, Belshazzar calls Daniel. And he says, hey, you're wise, you, you, you know this God, what's going on? And he's like, oh yeah, the, your, your days are numbered. You're, you're done. Your kingdom's gonna be taken over tonight by the Medes and the Persians. And then and, and Belshazzar's like, wow, that's great. Give him a robe, put some rings, you're second in command. And he's like, it doesn't matter. You guys, you're all gonna die tonight. And that's exactly what happens. And so the, the Persians then come in. Persian captivity happens. And so this is, this is Darius that ends up taking it over the kingdom. And this is where we get Xerxes and Artaxerxes in the book of Esther. Uh, she's married to Artaxerxes. And uh, all these things are happening during the Persian captivity. Um, and again, in the land, but yep, things aren't right. Well, where were all these promises? Where are the covenants that God said was, well, they didn't remain faithful. And so if we look at Malachi, this is the last um, prophet, the last book that is written in the Old Testament of Malachi. Uh, and so during that time of captivity, Malachi writes this. He says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. There's this prophecy that someone like Elijah is gonna come. Who's Elijah? A very powerful prophet. Uh, when I, Paul and I teach uh, systematic theology and we talk about miracles. A lot of times we, we think miracles are, uh, they, they can be kind of anything. You know, if you grew up like me and, and you got like a grandma, um, who it's like, your cousin Rebecca got into college. It's a miracle. And it's like, well, is it actually a miracle? You know what I mean? Or, or, or do they just have a very low acceptance, you know, to the college? I don't know. Um, I, I actually do have a cousin Rebecca, so I probably shouldn't. She's great. She's fantastic. Uh, that is not a true story at all. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Though? Like, like everything's a miracle. Well, when we look at miracles of something that God intervenes and changes and does something so powerful that it cannot be refuted or explained away by, by science or technology or time, that it's just something that's unreal. And there are three times in all of human history where we have miracles, things that happen. That's Moses, and then you skip forward a couple thousand years, you have Elijah and Elisha, and then you skip forward a couple thousand years and you have Jesus and the apostles. There's only a couple snippets. And so, so Malachi, a prophet here is saying, you know, the voice of God saying, someone like Elijah is gonna come back. Someone is gonna come back and do some amazing, powerful things that cannot be explained away. So this prophecy is given and yet, their situation at the time of this prophecy is very dire. And this is 400 years before we're gonna to get to the text that we're at today. But before we get there, because we're not done, we're still in captivity, 
And so the Persians are then taken over by the Greeks and Romans. This is all, again, prophesied in Daniel chapter eight. And so what happens is they just kind of change citizenship. That they're Persian, they're underneath Persian rule. And then what happens? Alexander the Great, if you've heard of him or seen a movie or whatever, Alexander the Great conquers all of the kind of that known area and that known world. And the Israelites, this is an extra biblical teaching, Josephus and a couple other books, they go to Alexander the Great and they're like, we actually always knew that some Greek was actually gonna take over. Because look, look what, our, look what our, our holy scriptures say this. And they're like, okay, cool. Well then, I guess you guys are part of our country now. And they're like, great. And they, they don't, they just kinda switch citizenship uh, from Persian to Greek, which obviously then becomes Roman. And so we have this Alexander the Great who comes, and there's passages, which again, we're talking about fullness, but uh, in First Corinthians, talking about the, the fullness of time has come and why is that? What, what is happening? Alexander the Great comes in and he conquers so much of the known world at the time and everybody, it's called a Hellenization, everybody learns Greek. Everybody learns about this culture. And so Jesus gets on the scene and his disciples get on the scene and his apostles get on the scene and when they start spreading the good news of the gospel, they're speaking Greek to other nations and countries that they don't speak their native tongue, but everybody knows this. It's almost like God knows what he's doing. So, and then in between this time, this waiting, there's also then this uh, revolt that happens by the Israelites called the Maccabean Revolt. If um, you grew up in the Catholic Church, you might have be familiar with First and Second Maccabees. It's uh, two historical books that are in uh, the Apocrypha, uh, just a fancy term for the in-between years of the Old Testament and New Testament is 400 years of silence. And so these are the kind of the history books that happen. And so Judas Maccabeus and, and his brother Matthias, they revolt and, they, and everyone thinks actually maybe, maybe Judas is the Messiah. He's conquering, he's killing the Romans with the sword. He's setting us free. Let's rebuild the temple. Let's serve our God. And very quickly that is snuffed out by Antiochus and does some pretty horrendous things in the temple uh, uh, that I'm not gonna talk about it, but some of them though that he ends up butchering a pig uh, that in the Holy of Holies, right? This is like only one day a year on the Day of Atonement can someone go in there with the shed blood of a lamb and, and, and pigs were just so dirty. They still are pretty dirty if you've ever been around a pig farm, but, uh, but it's okay to eat them. Bacon's amazing. Uh, but, but it wasn't then. And this guy goes in and he slaughters a, a pig in the Holy of Holies just to spit in the face of the Israelites and to say, you're nothing. So we have what's called this 400 years of silence and, and they've just been waiting and they've been waiting. The Israelites have been waiting and waiting and waiting for something to happen. And yet nothing's been said. There's no prophets. Nobody's talking about anything. God, God just seemingly ceases to exist. But then we're introduced to a prepared messenger in Mark chapter one. I'm gonna read through this passage. It says, in the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus, Yeshua, the Deliverer, the Savior, the Messiah, this promised one, the anointed one, the Son of God, this prophetic name that Jesus uses for himself almost 70 times, this is who I am shows up on the scene and someone's gonna proclaim the news, the good news about Jesus, about who he is and about what his kingdom is actually like. And as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, 
I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make, they make straight paths for him. Right? I want you to get things ready so that when the Messiah does show up, people are just anticipating him, right? They've been waiting, they've been waiting. Now you're, gonna, you're, you're the hype man, right? You come up on the stage, you got the music playing, you're telling everyone that this guy is coming and then he shows up and people leave, everyone leaves you, all of your disciples, all of your followers leave you to go to Jesus. And this is John the Baptist. So we're introduced to this word, baptism. Read this, continuing here. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism. I've mentioned this before, but I think it's always kind of interesting to, to talk about this word Baptist or baptism. Uh, it's in, our, in, our, in, in English, what we call a transliteration. That in the Greek language that this was translated out of, it's baptizo. I'm not trying to get fancy. Koine Greek means common Greek. It's just a, it's not, it's not cool. It's not fancy. It's actually very easy to learn, okay? And I, that's me speaking. I mean that. Uh, and so they have this word, but yet people who are translating the English Bible uh, disagreed on what baptism really was. Is it, a, is it a sprinkling? Is it a dipping? Is it a dunking? What is it? Well, we disagree on it, so we're just gonna say baptize. And you can interpret that however you want. So now we have this guy, John the Baptist, appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism. Now imagine if you didn't grow up in a culture that baptized. You know how, you know how weird this tank is, right? It is, it's bizarre. It is bizarre to say, hey, we want people to know about Jesus. We want people to come to faith in Jesus. Oh, you believe in Jesus? You, you have this internal faith? We want you not to, to publicly display that. And you know how we're gonna do that? We're gonna dunk you underwater. And we're gonna pull you out of it. That's how we're gonna do it. That's what John's doing. Is it unique to John? No, no, not at all. A lot of people don't know this and that's okay. This is a Jewish tradition baptizing had been going on. They didn't call it baptizing. They called it a ceremonial cleansing, the mikveh, uh, where they, or mikveh, <laughs> I, don't, I have no idea how to pronounce it. Uh, the mikveh, where they would, they would dunk. They would do this. There was three large chambers that they would build. It was filled with rainwater, and it was a ceremonial cleansing. That anytime you were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, the one on the left there is a picture of in Qumran where they found the... Uh, uh, old documents, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, thank you. Uh, and, then, and then the other one on the right was something in 1100 they found in some, in some uh, uh, tabernacle temple. So anyways, these large chambers right now, I mean, I'm Baptist, so I'm gonna let a joke about this. I just don't see these three large thousand gallon tanks made for, for a little sprinkle. I just don't see that happening. It seems like they go in the water and get dunked under it. Just throwing that out there. You can interpret that however you want. I don't care. I do care. But listen, they weren't concerned about germs, right? This isn't like taking a bath. This was a ceremonial cleansing. And so basically what happened is that anything, a lot of the rules, this is all in the, in the book of Leviticus. You can read about these, these ceremonial washings. That anytime there was something on me, uh, illness or, and that I was declared clean or something from the inside of my body that comes out of my body that's unclean. Okay, that could be any number of bodily fluids it makes you unclean, all right? And so this was a ceremonial cleansing. It's just what they did. It was just a ritual that they did. It didn't save them from their sins. It didn't wash their sins away. 
None of that's happening here. It's a symbol of my cleanliness and acceptance back into my Jewish community. And so, going back to this passage, then John the Baptist appears in the wilderness preaching a baptism, but not of ceremonial cleansing, but of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's a drastic shift here of what's going on. Now, this isn't just, hey, I want you, I want, I'm gonna dunk you under this water so you're ceremonial clean, so you can be accepted back in your community. Well, I, wanna, I wanna do this to ceremonially demonstrate you have been forgiven of your sins. That's a, that's a wildly different interpretation of the Old Testament of what's going on. But John the Baptist, what's he doing? He's preparing the way. He's hyping up the guy who actually can forgive sins. So just continuing here, it says the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Again, another large body of water and John wore clothing made of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honeys. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's fulfillment of, of, the, of the new covenant, Jeremiah 32, that the law is gonna be written on our hearts. The spirit of God is gonna indwell in individuals. This is a fulfillment that's happening. He's hyping up. Yes, I'm, I'm dipping you in water, but something greater is happening here. That there's going to be a baptism with the Holy Spirit. And we can see that there is then a greater fulfillment than Israel. We've talked about this, that Israel represents humanity and, and these individuals, their, their lostness, their strain from God, their rebellion to God. And God continually goes back to them, continually saves them because of who he is, not because of anything they've ever done. So we read in Mark chapter one, continuing that same, in the same gospel of Mark, chapter one, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So if there's any doubt, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he really the chosen one? Is he the anointed one? Is he gonna be the one that sets Israel free from their sins? He's baptized and a lot of people hear this voice, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Then at once, the spirit sent him out to the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Think back to the story of Israel just after the Exodus, just after, excuse me, right before the Exodus, just, just after the Passover, right? They're, they're dead. The Egyptian army's coming down. They're about to die. And then God, what's he do? Provides a way of salvation through water. And then what do they do? They get expelled into the wilderness, but they fail over and over and over because they don't listen to the word of God. They don't listen to Yahweh when he says, I will provide for you. You're gonna go into this land and you're gonna take it over. 12 men went to spy on Canaan. 10 were bad and two were good. Anybody else? See, yeah, I'm not weird, you're weird. And they go into the promised land, sing a song, right? And they get distracted by the giants and the, and the, and the cities that are there. And they don't listen to God and they run back in the wilderness and God's like, what are you doing? 
And just like that, Jesus, after being baptized, after passing through the water, goes into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days, and he's tempted. He's hungry, just like the Israelites, but he always trusts the word of God. Satan tempts him. Hey, if, if you're the son of God. Jesus is like, I just heard. I am the son of God. Well, I know you're hungry. Why don't you turn these stones into bread? He's like, I don't need to do that. I need to trust the word of God. I'm not going to do that. Listens to the word of God. So now we get to fulfillment. We get this moment now, right? That all Israel, all of the world, all nations, maybe not actively looking for, but they've been longing for a savior, longing for a Messiah. We get this fulfillment, looking forward to this. Growing up, I was you know, a child of the 80s. I loved Top Gun, right? And obviously the new one just came out, Top Gun Maverick. That's, that's a, what a year difference. That's almost a 40 year difference. Hey, I don't know much about Scientology, but they got something in the water over there. You know what I'm saying? That's impressive. That's impressive. That's a joke. <laughs> this long, I'm looking forward to this because this movie, I remember I, I was so excited about it. I went to Kings Island and rode the Top Gun roller coaster. You know, I was like, I loved the Top Gun. Loved it. Waited for this. And then right during COVID, they like advertised and all this stuff. Like, hey, it's coming out, it's coming out. Oh, wait, we're going to wait. We're going to wait till this pandemic thing's over. And it's like, no, why would you do that? It's worth the wait, <laughs> right? It was so good. Jesus is better than Top Gun Maverick, guys. Here's what happens in Mark chapter one, verse 14. After John was put into prison, let me, let me just give a little bit of context here. So you have John the Baptist, right? You can, just his demeanor, he's, he's wild. If you've watched the series, The Chosen, which you should, it's a fantastic series. John the Baptist is a little eccentric. He's a little different. He's Jesus's cousin. John's put in prison, why? Here's why. Because he goes to Herod. Herod is the Tetrarch. Herod is kind of the, the king of the Jews. He's in charge of the Jews. But he's Jewish. He himself is Jewish. That The Roman kingdom put him in charge. And so you have Herod, who adheres to the Jewish law, most of it, falls in love with his brother's wife, Philip, Philip's wife. That's bad. And then he ends up killing his brother and getting married to his sister-in-law. So now his wife, and she changes her name to Herodias. So Herod and Herodias, right? Happy couple. And John says, hey man, Herod, you're, you're Jewish. You adhere to the Jewish law. You can't do that. That's bad. Let me show you the verse where you can't do that. And Herod's like, ah, yeah, that's not good. John, you gotta keep your mouth shut. So I'm gonna put you in prison. So he puts John the Baptist in prison and there's a party one night and Herodias' daughter from Philip dances and Herod's like, wow, that's great, cool, good dance. You can have anything you want. I don't know what it is about kings and alcohol and dancing in the Bible, but they're like, anything you want, I'll get whatever you want. And she doesn't know what to ask for. So she goes to her mom and is like, hey mom, my stepdad said I could get anything I want, what should I get? And she's like, John the Baptist's head on a silver platter now. She's not happy with the guy. So John's in prison, not because he went after somebody for doing something wrong culturally, something that was doing something wrong that said they adhered to his religion. And John's put in prison for it. He's eventually beheaded for it. There's a little bit of context of that phrase, it's all. And continuing, Jesus went, actually, you know what? Uh, I, sorry, I meant to do this. Uh, would you mind all just standing with me 
uh, and reading this. This is kind of our, our text for the day. I, I promise it's not like seventh inning stretch where we're halfway through or seventh inning. Where, you know, just, I've been trying to do this a little bit more when we've got a shorter uh, verse or text for the, for the day. And so just read this out loud uh, with me about uh, our passage for today specifically uh, that we have. So uh, Mark, chapter four, Mark chapter one, verses 14 through 15 says this. Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Thank you, maybe seated. Here we are, right? This is, the, this is the fulfillment. This is what the entire Bible, 66 books of the Old Testament have been pointing us forward to at this moment of time. That's penned in Mark chapter one. This is it, proclaiming the good news. The Greek, again, I'm not trying to get fancy or anything, but this is the Greek word is evangelion, which is where, where we get our word evangelical. When you hear the word evangelical Christian, I'm sure a plethora of things filter through your brain. Evangelical simply means proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And so when people ask me, hey, Brian, are you evangelical? I have to say, well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean I, I want to proclaim the good news of Jesus? If that's what you mean, yeah, sure. If you mean culturally evangelical, no. Why? That's not what Jesus teaches. He says this, the time has come, he said. What does he say? The kingdom of God has come near. What is the kingdom of God? He says, it's, it's me. I'm here. It's not the souls of men, not some political influence, not some land that we own. But the kingdom of God expands after those of us who have been called to, to be disciples go and become fishers of men and women and their souls go from death to life, that's how the kingdom expands. And he says, repent and believe the good news, the gospel. So what is the gospel? I know that for years I have been hammering and it's been a while since I've done this, but talk about these four words. We could break down the gospel into these four words that you have in the beginning God. You have to have God, that God created. He's good, sinless, he's holy. But then we have man, second word, who enters in and sins against God, rejects God, and is separated. And there's no longer harmony between God and man and humanity. It's ripped apart. But then you have Jesus. And Jesus shows up and he dies a death that we couldn't die even if we tried, just like Israel, couldn't do it. And all we have to do is have faith in Christ for that. That's a simple way to talk about the gospel, God, man, Jesus, faith. What does Jesus say about the gospel? Skipping forward in the story to Luke chapter six says this, and when he, that is Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue. He's Jewish. He's going to, going to the synagogue on a Sabbath, on a Saturday, as he would. And there'd be a teaching. It was kind of a square room uh, with chairs, kind of multi-layers. And then in the middle of the room is where they would teach. And the rabbi would then, uh, there'd be a reading of the day, a kind of a scriptural reading. They'd read it, and a rabbi would teach on it. And so for whatever it was, Jesus either gets up on his own volition or is asked, could you read uh, a reading for today? And he opens up to the prophet Isaiah, okay? And, and the scroll, so, so he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. 
and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So I, I, I think that he got up to read. They're like, hey, Jesus, son of Joseph, could you, would you mind doing the reading today? He's like, yeah, I'll do that. And they hand him the scroll, this big scroll of Isaiah is given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recoverings of sight to the blind and to set liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jubilee, freedom. And he rolls up the scroll. <laughs> He's standing there, right in the middle of the room. He, roll, he reads that, rolls it up, gives it back to the attendant, goes and takes his seat. He rolls up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. <laughs> you can imagine. I just put yourself in this situation. And the eyes of all the synagogue are fixed on. What was that, Jesus? What are you doing? That seems like a very specific thing that you're saying, so we're all gonna eyeball you until you explain yourself. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa. Right, this is a mic drop moment. You wouldn't drop a scroll, that would be bad. You didn't have mics, but you know what I'm saying. This is a big statement. What's he saying? The spirit of the Lord is upon me the anointed one, the Messiah. And because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news, the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of the sight of the blind, and the liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Yeah, that's me. It's all about me. You want the good news? You're staring at it. And they're like, whoa, Jesus, not cool. You need to die. And they try to throw him off a cliff, and he somehow escapes. He gets away from him. It wasn't time for him to die yet. That's what Jesus says about the gospel. It's all me. Everything you read about is me. And it's freedom of the oppressed, of the poor. And it's pointing people to the good news, the gospel, me. There's a theologian that I really appreciate. His name is Robert Lethem. I've read from him before. I know Paul has as well. Let me just read a, a couple quotes here and then we'll be, we'll be done. Robert Lethem says this. All right, Jesus is using this language of the kingdom of God. It's me. The kingdom is near. I'm here. He says, in the rest of the New Testament, this theme of the kingdom of God disappears. Instead, the apostles draw attention to Jesus Christ. He is the subject of the sermons of Peter and Paul. The primary focus of the gospel is on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The kingdom, all right, this kingdom that God is preaching is equated with, with land, with a throne, with a king. The kingdom is equated with the whole counsel of God. It is identified with the totality of apostolic teaching after the resurrection, the main point of which is precisely Christ's resurrection. If Jesus doesn't raise from the dead, if he is not alive physically now, we are all wasting our time. And the apostles made sure we knew that. The kingdom of God is embodied in the risen Christ who has been given plete and potentiary powers over the entire universe. Now I know what that means, but I know you don't. I'm just kidding, I had no idea what that meant. 
So I put the dictionary right up there. Bleeding potentiary. I mean, I'm probably not saying that right. Plen, plenipotentiary? Sure. Plen, plen, plenipotentiary. I put an extra T in there somewhere. What is it? A person, especially a diplomat, invested with the full power of independent action on behalf of their government. So Jesus has given all of the power and action on behalf of their government, and these powers are over the entire universe. That's what Robert Lethem is saying here. That's the kingdom of God. He is king. He's the one who rules and reigns. Last quote here, though, by Karl Barth, and I know I've read this before, a while, long time ago, but I'm going to read this again. Looking at this kingdom the worthiness of Christ who is seated on the throne. He says this, Christ became holy and utterly one with man, not in an act of a secret or public condensation. That's a, a word that theologians use. It doesn't mean he was condescending uh, of the way I've been a little bit this morning. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know what plet and potentiary means? Uh, no, because that's not a word. <laughs> uh, Plenipotentiary. Uh, I probably said it wrong again. It doesn't mean condescending. Right, it's saying he's not, but it's, the, it's the, the, the dissension of God being, Jesus being God in his kingdom, in heaven, and he descends and takes on flesh. It's called the condescension of Christ. But he doesn't do this in secret or public like a king for a, chance, uh, for a change, donning a beggar's rags and mingling with the crowd, but by belonging to them in every way, by being no more and no less than one of them. I love this next line, by having no point of reference except to them. Fully human. He became one of them, not in order to renounce fellowship with them when the game was over, like the king is changing again the beggar's rags for his kingly robes. Not in order to leave again the table where he had seated himself with the publicans and sinners. He's, he's talking about Jesus. He's not saying Jesus sat with these tax collectors and sinners. This is, sometimes we just read that, this is about the, the publicans and sinners. It's kind of an old way, kind of a King James way of saying it. But tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were ultimate traitors. Again, they're under Roman rule, and the Romans have taxes. And so the way to appease everybody is they send a, a Jewish individual who's employed by their captors to go to their neighbors and friends and family and collect taxes. They were the scum of the earth. And Jesus is like, I wanna eat meals with you. I wanna go to your house. Because I want you to know that I love you, even though the rest of the world despises you. And sinners were a class. It was like a social standing. It wasn't just somebody who was bad. This was somebody who was labeled by society like earning income from wrongdoing. And Jesus is like, those are the people I want to eat a meal with. Kind of like us. Sinners. So he says, he, didn't, he doesn't just leave again the table where he had seated himself with these tax collectors and sinners to find a better place, but in order to be one of them definitively, as well as originally, unashamed to call them brethren to all eternity because he was their brother from all eternity. That eons past, that God the Father and the perfect image of God the Father, his son and the spirit that communed in this trinity 
is together and they counsel among themselves and say, we're gonna make something special. Not like the angels, as great as they are and as rebellious as they were, we're gonna make someone in our image, humans. An image bearer, son, you are gonna become one of them and you are gonna die for their sins. Not, and you're not gonna do it because you're ashamed. Unashamed to call each and every one of us brothers and sisters for all eternity because that was always the plan. Always the plan to be accepted. And Jesus doesn't just leave and ascend to just be gone and to rule and reign with an iron fist. But he's gonna come back and he's gonna set the table again with us as our elder brother. So that, that is good news. That is evangelical. That's what the good news is, that we have a savior who loves us, cares for us and died for us. Last Sunday, I had the opportunity, it was kind of last minute to, to teach at our young adults ministry downtown uh, location. And, and we were in a room and I um, taught on, I just kind of did a lecture that I normally do for systematic theology. And, um, but they were allowed to ask questions. I mentioned this in the weekly email that I send out. Um, and if you didn't get that, that QR code in the back, uh, the new, new thing, I can scan that and, and sign up that way. Um, but they were allowed to, to submit questions. And this was one question that was, had nothing to do with my topic, which those are always the best ones. This was the question that was asked. Where is it? Here we go. If you could snap your fingers and change one big thing about the church in America, what would it be? I.e. the biggest miss made by the church in America. <laughs> I ranted. I'm not gonna do it now, because it's being recorded. <laughs> But I went off. Now, unfortunately, there are too many things about the church in America that I would change if I could, historically speaking. So I said, let me answer that question as if it's today, right now. What's the biggest miss? And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I even got an amen a couple weeks ago. That doesn't happen a lot for me. That there's something about this political nationalism that identifies themselves as this Christian thing that God is somehow American and we need to get this nation back the way it once was. It's garbage. That is not the kingdom of God. It was never intended to be that way. It was always about Jesus. It was always about him being the Messiah, about him walking up and reading the scroll from Isaiah and dropping it, metaphorically speaking, and saying, it's me. That's the gospel we preach. That's the good news. And politics are not the answer. Politics are not the solution to our problems. They might help, sure. They're not the answer to anything that we can think about. My issues, my neighborhood, my community, whether it's homelessness or poverty or, or racism that we have, passing bills doesn't force people to be better people. It might restrict them a little bit. I'm not saying it's out of place. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. That's a whole other sermon we could talk about. So don't hear that wrong. Don't hear that. That's like called a two kingdoms theology. Right? Let the government do government. Let the church do church. Don't do anything. No, we, we can influence, sure. But that's not the answer. The gospel's the answer. Let Jesus transform someone from the inside out and let them spill out the teachings of Jesus of love and peace and unity and justice and holiness. And then we can see the world change.
And that happens one soul at a time. And so just an application this morning. The fulfillment has come. The time is fulfilled. And we can see that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than politics. We saw today that Jesus is better than ceremonial cleansing. He's better than even, than even repentance <laughs> cleansing. He brings the Holy Spirit, internal life change. He's better than Israel being tempted in the wilderness. He's better than just some spiritual force that has no idea what it's like to be you, to live in your shoes, to put on your skin. He knows. The book of Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest, we have a savior, Jesus, who's able to empathize with our weakness. He gets it. And so when we go to him in prayer and we say, God, I don't know what to do in this situation. I'm really hurting. Jesus looks you in the eye and he says, I see you. I hear you. I know you. I'm better. I'm better than that thing you're struggling with. And I know it's a struggle. I know it's a temptation. But I died so you don't have to keep giving in to that. I love you. So as we do every week here at Hope Lower Town, we're gonna have communion. We have these elements here. The bread, which represents the little wafer that represents the body of Christ that's broken for us. The juice that represents his blood that was shed for us. That we have this older brother who takes on flesh, who is unashamed to eat a meal with us. The same way that we are able to be unashamed to eat a meal with anybody who says, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. So if you bow the, the knee to King Jesus, you say, yeah, I worship that Jesus. I worship that gospel of Jesus. And I would love for you to partake of these elements today. Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you didn't have a, a true biblical understanding of who Jesus is. And he was just a good guy, a good teacher. So much more than that. And so this morning we can partake of these elements. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't need to be a member of this church or any church, I would love to partake of this meal and symbolically remember that we have an older brother, Jesus, who is unashamed of us, that welcomes us at, to sit at his table. Regardless of your background, regardless of, of what you think you've done, Jesus has seen it. And he says, I love you, I care for you, I wanna forgive you. There's room at the table. Let me pray and we'll sing two songs as the worship team comes back up and feel free to get up and grab these elements as you see fit, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that I get to call you Father. I thank you that even just singing a song that we just did of, of looking at even the sacrifice that you made, that in eons past, that some time in the past that you and your son and your spirit decided your son was gonna give himself for the sins of unworthy human beings. And you, Father, had to stand there and watch your son be beaten and killed and crucified by those of whom he came to save. That his body is broken, his blood is shed. And so as we partake of these elements, we get to remember that we have a brother who's not ashamed to call us a brother, who's not ashamed to call us a sister, who is our brother, who loves us. And so God, I pray this morning that maybe your kingdom would be expanding. That there might be somebody who for the first time Here's the kingdom and the good news of Jesus and says, yeah, I'm in. I want that. 
We can see and hear the angels rejoice. I pray now this time would be remembrance and a time of celebration, time of repentance as we remember the finished work of your son on the cross. And we pray these things in Jesus, your Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God. It's in his name that we pray, amen.